Thank you so much for being here today. We welcome you. Maybe you are new today to our church, to Bentry. We're grateful that God has brought you here. No one is here by accident. God on purpose brought you today to be with us. Bella, you are nine years of age, and you did a phenomenal job reading the scriptures over us. I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. We got our students and teenagers in the room with us, and the goal over Family Sundays this month, as our students and some of our children are here, is that these Sundays would inspire spiritual conversations at home. So parents, be thinking about questions to ask your kids, and kids, you be thinking about questions to ask your parents, all right? Uh, you can make sure that they're paying attention during the sermon. So go home and ask a few questions to your parents as well. Hey, maybe you are a student and you know this songwriter by the name of Taylor Swift. Anybody know Taylor Swift? Yeah, a few of us. Okay. She wrote a song in 2014 called Shake It Off. Okay. It was number one on the billboard. It sold more than a half a million digital copies just within the first week of the song. And you may not know the, the song title, but I'm sure you know these words. It says, because the players are going to play, 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 play. Haters are going to hate, hate, hate. Hate, hate. Baby, I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. Shake it off, shake it off. Now, this song is popular because there's a lot of words that are just repeated. <laughs> I should try that in my sermons and see how well it works, but I guess it works in my sermons, just, just uh, in, in songs. But, you know, it, it, it communicates the idea, hey, whatever is going on, whatever hate you might be feeling, whatever pressure you might be under, just shake it off. You're good, move on, move forward with your Life. Now, the truth is when in real life haters hate and players play, it's a little bit difficult to shake it off. All right? I tried singing this song over my wife when the Cowboys don't win, but it doesn't seem to work every time. All right, I won't take a jab at the Cowboys anymore. I love, I'm going to love the Cowboys next season. I am. <laughs> but think about it. In your life, and maybe you're joining us online, in your life, how long did it take for you to shake off that disappointment? That, lost, that last job layoff, that betrayal, that lie somebody told you, how long did it take you to shake off that breakup or that heartbreak? Something you went through, a wound, I'm imagining it took you longer than the length of this song to move on and to shake things off in real life because it's just not that easy. Now we grew up thinking, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And by the time we were in second grade, we realized that was a lie, right? Uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can actually break my heart. And that takes longer to shake off and to move on from. So today in Psalm 62, King David is going to teach us how do we handle the haters in our life? All right? How do we handle the opposition, criticism? How do we handle moments that we cannot control, things that just happen to you? I mean, you could be going about your day and boom, something happens totally out of your control. What do you do? So I think sometimes we buy into this illusion that we control everything in life. Now we've got complete grips around so much in life. And I realized when we had kids that I had no control over anything in that moment. Good luck, babe. You got it. And the truth is that Stacy wasn't in control. Even the doctors were not in control of the delivery process. God was in complete Control, Because it's an illusion to think that we control everything. Chuck Swindoll said it like this, that worry is assuming responsibility over the things that are out of our control. That's pretty much everything. 
Just about everything in life, it's out of our control. So we can't control most things in life, but here's one thing that you and I can control. We can't control our circumstances, but we can control our response. You can't handle or control what happens to you or change a lot of times what happens to you, but you can handle, you can change, you can control what you do in that moment. You can control your response. I've heard it like this, your responsibility is your response. Or your response is your responsibility. You can't control what other people do or say. You're not responsible over those things. You and I are responsible for our response. Scholars say in Psalm 62, although the background is not 100% certain, most likely David is writing Psalm 62 when he's hiding out for his life. See, what's happening in Psalm 62, most likely, is that Absalom, David's son, is leading a national all-out revolt against his own dad to take over his throne and kill his dad. Your kids might have done some crazy things in life, but I'm imagining they didn't try to do that. So Absalom, the son of David, has gathered together David's family members, his court officials, his trusted advisors, and he is leading them to conspire against David. This is a difficult moment in life. So notice what's happening in verse 3. We're going to start from verse 3, get to the context of what's going on in David's mind, and then work our way backwards. Psalm 62, verse 3, David says, How long will you threaten a man? So this is not an overnight issue. This has been going on for some time. Will all of you attack as if, we, as if he were a leaning wall or a, or a tottering fence? They only plan to bring him down from his high position. They take pleasure in lying. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. And if you read back in 2 Samuel, the account of the story, there were many people who were in the inward circle with David, who were on the inner circle with David. In this moment, they conspired against him. They would say good things with their mouth. Oh, we support you, king. You got it. We're for you. And then behind closed doors, they were spreading all kinds of lies and rumors. And they were plotting against David. How painful of a moment to see that the nation you have been leading, the family you have been raising, the people that you brought so close to you now are turning on you, conspiring to take your life. Actually, we don't have to imagine what was going through David's mind. Second Samuel records this feelings of David, this turmoil in David's life. Chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, verse 30, as David is headed for the hills, as Absalom is literally pursuing David, notice what happens. David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered and he was walking barefoot. All of the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. What do you do as a dad, as a king? your son's revolting and trying to kill you. Some of the people in the inner circle of David said, hey, fight Absalom. We can destroy him. And David says, no, that's my son. I imagine two of the most difficult times in David's life. The first was when his firstborn, the son of Bathsheba, died at the age of seven days old. David weeps there when his firstborn dies. Then I imagine in this moment, his fourth son, Absalom, leading a coup against him, a national revolt against him. How hard of a moment was that? This is the ultimate picture of betrayal and wound. And maybe in some ways, this was harder than the first moment because you have a son who was very much alive trying to take you down 
What a severe, deep wound in David's life. So imagine if this is the background of Psalm 62, that this would be a psalm of despair, of turmoil, of David asking God, why aren't you coming through? How could you let this happen? I thought you had a promise for me that my kingdom would last for all eternity. But you would imagine David to be frustrated. But to the contrary, Psalm 62 is one of the most confident, faith-building psalms that David has ever written. So notice how David responds in the midst of opposition, betrayal, severe wound. Verse 1. Actually, what you realize is this is a confident response. And what that, I think, teaches us is that trouble is inevitable, but misery is optional. Let me make sure I say that. Trouble is inevitable, but misery is optional. Job 14, verse 1 says, A man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. How is that for the morning news, right? Few of days and full of trouble. What he's saying is you're going to have trouble in life. David had trouble in life. But his response was a choice. Misery oftentimes, especially emotional and attitude misery, that's a choice. We get to respond. So how is it that David responds in the midst of the worst moment of his life? What is his response? Notice verse 1. I am at rest in God. Oh, I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken. This is when you look at David and said, wait, what? Like what planet do you have to be on to be in the midst of the worst chaos and crisis of your life? And rather than plotting and refuting and revolting and revenging, if that's a word, rather than claiming your rights to your throne and, and coming up with a brilliant strategy to overthrow those that are trying to overthrow you, you are at rest in God. Like you, this is a time to fight. This is a time to rise up. This is a time to make your claims known. And went back the throne. No, 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 no. David says the most important thing you can do in the midst of chaos is to rest. Rest in God alone. Resting in God isn't a bonus. It's actually critical in the midst of our chaos. It's the very thing that gets you to the other side. So this is the first thing that David says. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of moments you cannot control, rest in God alone. Now, some of your translations will say, wait on God silently or wait quietly on him. The truth is that in the Hebrew sentence here in verse 1, there is no verb used at all. It's several nouns and several words that describe this posture of stillness and silence before the Lord. This is not passive. This is actually proactive. It takes work to do this. It's the sense of coming to God and becoming still in your soul and silent in your heart. See, to rest is to bring your soul to surrender, stillness, and silence as you wait on God. And that's hard to do. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. The natural mind is ever prone to reason when we ought to believe, to be at work when we ought to be quiet, to go our own way when we ought steadily to walk in God's ways. Your soul, my soul is so prone to work, to be active, to think, to process, to strategize. And here David is saying to his soul, rest in God alone. How long has it been since your soul has found rest in God? How does he do this? 
Rather than thinking about contemplating the chaos around him, David begins to contemplate and think about the character, the promises of God. And as he does so, my soul rests. He is my rock, my salvation. I won't be shaken. He is my salvation, my stronghold, my fort, my refuge. He is proactively yielding his soul to God, to his word. He is bowing his soul to the sovereignty of God. He is quieting the murmur of doubt and fear and restlessness before God. It's an active process. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, be still and feel that I am God. No, 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 that's not what it says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, the moments of chaos, what's more important than what you feel is what you know. What is it that you know that you grab a hold on to in the moments of disappointment and when things don't go your way and the diagnosis is not what you expected? What do you know that triumphs over what you feel? And David is saying, I know that my God is my rock, my shield, my strength. And because I know that to be a fact, because that is true, I can yield my soul in silence to God midst of opposition and chaos, we rest in God. And the second thing David says is to hope in God. So we rest in God alone and we hope in God alone. Verse five, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock, my refuge is in God. If you compare the first two verses of the psalm and these two verses, David does two things that are a little different. One, he repeats the first few lines of the psalm, and two, he intensifies the language he uses. So rather than saying, I will not be greatly shaken, he says, I won't be shaken at all. Rather than saying, he is my refuge, he says, he is my strong refuge. Rather than making a statement, rest in God, he commands his soul to actively rest in God. See, when we don't rest in God, what do we do? We repeat to ourselves the most negative conclusions, the worst case scenario, and we exaggerate. And Tammy said a few weeks ago, there's no grace in our imagination. So we think about the worst case scenario and we tell ourselves that. Like, have you ever Googled your way into a medical diagnosis and you've gone to the doctor? Hey, I know you've gone to school and you've studied, but here's what I read on WebMD or whatever it is that you've Googled. I'm going to die. It's horrible for me. See, in this moment, David is now repeating his crisis. He is repeating the character of God. He is repeating the promises of God, the goodness of God. So what's been on repeat in your soul? What's been the playback in your mind as you're processing, as you're thinking, as you're talking to people, as you're searching? What's been on repeat? Is it the crisis you're in or is it the character of God? So David says, rest my soul. I command you rest because your hope is from God. Here David is not hoping for something from God. He's simply hoping in God. It's not that he's making a list of things and saying, God, I hope you do this for me. He's saying, God, you are the very essence of my hope. 
My very expectation comes from you. You are the definition of my hope. So I'm running to you because you're all I got. I'm running to you, God. I hope in you. My hope comes from you. And David says, my hope is that God will be my salvation and my rock, or my rock and my salvation. That's my hope. See, sometimes God will be your salvation and he'll pull you out of the trouble. He'll save you from the trouble. But other times, get this, he'll be a rock on which you stand through your troubles. The element of hope, whether he's your salvation pulling you out of the chaos or he's the steady rock in the midst of your chaos is both powerful. Sometimes God will calm the storm around you. Other times he'll calm your heart. He'll calm your soul. He'll bring you to rest whether he's your salvation from the storm, from the chaos, or he's your rock on which you stand, David would say, you can hope in him. You can trust in him because this rock of ages won't move. He is immovable. He won't quit on you. He won't give up on you. He will be there strong for you and powerful for you. Rest in God alone. Hope in God alone. And then he says, trust in God alone at all times. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Verse 1, he began with the statement, I'm resting in God. Verse 5, he's got to repeat it to his soul. So he speaks to himself, oh, my soul, rest in God. And then he thinks of you and he speaks to you and I and says, oh, you people, all you bentriers, trust in him at all times. I was thinking this week, what's the difference between hope and trust? Why does David use these two different words here? See, if I were to let you borrow my car, I'm not hoping that you can drive. <laughs> I'm trusting that you can drive. There's a difference, isn't there? Like, I'm not, hey, I'll, hey Avery, my five-year-old girl, I hope you can drive, so here's a car. She's never driven before, so I'm not going to hope that she can drive. But if you've driven before and you've got a good track record and you haven't been in too many accidents, I'm going to trust that you can drive. Because hope speaks of a longing, a desire, but trust looks at the track record of a person. It looks at the history of a person. And it says, I can be confident in them now because of what they've done in the past. I can use their past faithfulness to give me confidence now. See, when we hope in God, we stand in the present and we look to the future. And when we stand in the presence, we look at the, at the present, we look at the character of God. So I can hope in God because I can look forward to a life with him. He's good, he's faithful, he's good. I can look to the future. So hope catapults us to the future. It's confidence in the future from the present. But trust looks back. Trust looks back at the track record of God at the faithfulness of God. If he's been with me in the past, he'll be with me now. Can I get an amen? He's been with me in my last job layoff, in my last diagnosis, in my last trouble. He'll be with me now. So hope stands from the present and looks forward to the future because you can hope in the character of God. But trust stands in the present and looks backwards and brings in the goodness, the faithfulness of God to the present. So trust gives you confidence in the now because of who God has been to you in the past. And hope gives you confidence in the now because of who God will be in the future. And David is saying, you can do both with God. 
And it's God alone with whom you can do both. You can trust in him and hope in him. You can rely on his faithfulness in the past and you can trust his character for the future. So if he said he'll be a rock, he'll be a rock. If he said he'll be your stronghold, he'll be that for you. If he said he'll be your savior, your salvation, your refuge, he will be that for you. He's always reliable. David knows our temptation to trust in people because of how important they are or to trust in people because of how wealthy they are, how resourceful they are. He says, don't do that. Look at Psalm 62 verse 9. Common people are only a vapor. Important people, an illusion. Together on a scale, they weigh less than a vapor. So place no trust in oppression or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. David is one of the most wealthiest kings to have ever lived. He is surrounded by power brokers, people who've got influence and authority and power. He says, but don't look to those things to build your trust Don't set your eyes on your wealth as your security. Don't trust the influence and the importance of people. You put them all together, they're less than a breath, less than a vapor. So you trust in God and God alone. And here's what David knew to be true. Look at verse 11. God has spoken once and I heard this twice. David's saying, God only had to tell me once. And I've heard it over and over again. I've heard it twice. Sometimes God has to tell us twice and we barely hear once, right? David said, God's spoken once. I've heard it twice. It's ingrained in my heart what is strength belongs to God and faithful love belongs to God. Lord, for you repay each according to his work. This is what Bella read earlier. Strength, meaning power, belongs to God. Faithful love, it's the word has said, this covenantal love. This sacrificial love, this all-encompassing, relentless love belongs to God. Last week we said, rarely do you find a person with both of these. There's some that are powerful, some that are loving. But power only leads to domination and tyranny, and love alone leads to benevolence and maybe compassion. But in God, you find both. He's incredibly powerful, and he is loving. See, in the midst of your chaos, in the midst of disappointment and unanswered questions, The greatest argument of the enemy is, I thought you said your God was all-powerful. I thought he was all-loving. See, surely, how could an all-powerful God and an all-loving God allow you to go through this? If he was powerful, he would save you from this. If he was loving, he would prevent you from this. But David, in the midst of his worst circumstance, affirms this truth, God, is both powerful and loving in the midst of my pain. In the midst of the greatest betrayal that I've ever experienced, he is both. Why? Because David's confidence in God was not based on David's circumstance. David's confidence in God was based on his character. That's where faith is built. Not how well things are going for you or for me. That's shifting sands. No, David would say, no, it's the character of God that I'm confident in. Not how well things are going for me. So don't look to your circumstances to define the power and love of God. Look to the cross. Look to the cross where he displayed infinite love and infinite power for you. That's what builds your confidence in God, not the circumstances, but the character of God as displayed on the cross. See, even in the story, this is how I wish the story would have ended. Because David rested in God, because he trusted in God, because he hoped in God, Absalom repented of his sins 
ran back home and they hugged it out. And together they shared in a prosperous kingdom and lived happily ever after. That's the story that we wish was written, but that's not the case. The story didn't end as David had hoped. It didn't. What happens in 2 Samuel is David tells his men, make sure you keep my son safe, don't kill him. But of course, Absalom is on a mule. His hair gets caught in the thickness of the branches. He's hanging on a tree, and one of David's men throws three spears and takes him out. It's a tragic ending. So when they come back to David and tell him, hey, God's given us a victory, we won. David's first question is, is my son Absalom safe? Is he alive? And he asks this question over and over again, is he safe? When he hears the news that he's not, he leaves the scene, goes to his chamber, and weeps. He cries. This is not the ending he had hoped for. And he yells and he screams and says, Absalom, my son, I wish I could have died in your place. I wish it was me that died in your place, not you, my son. The heart of a father is broken. Everything didn't go well for David, but still, in the midst of such heartache, he's able to affirm the truth. God is powerful. He is loving. Not because I got my way, but simply because that's who he is. That's the goodness of God. That's the character of who he is. Look at verse 8 again. David says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. Pour out your hearts before him. So there's really two invitations, I think, in the psalm. One is to rest, to be still, to be quiet, to be silent before God, thinking about his character, thinking about the promises of God. But the other one is to literally pour out your heart to him. Pour out the pain, the trouble, the grief, the sorrow, the trust, the hope, the lack of, whatever it might be. Pour out your heart to God. I think this invitation for us in the midst of chaos is to worship rather than worry. To worship rather than worry. Because you can really do either in the midst of chaos, but you can't really do both. Maybe you can worry more than you worship, but you can't do them both at the same time. So David is saying usually when we're in the midst of chaos, we're quick to pour our hearts out to people. And when that happens, anxiety increases, worry increases. But what if we ran to God and we poured out our heart to God? So rather than worry increasing, what if worship increased? What if thanksgiving increased? What if we poured our heart to God over his word, reminding us of his promises, his truth, his character, and we poured our heart to him in those moments? See, I think what happens is when we pour out our heart to him, he pours into us confidence, trust, and hope. He pours into us because he'll never leave you empty. You pour your heart to him, he pours into you. And I think that's what's happening in David in this psalm. Because if you notice, so often David is repeating words like, God is my rock, my salvation. Not just the God out there, not the God, he is mine. 
my salvation, my fortress, my refuge, my rock. And he says, God alone is that for me. No one else. It's not God plus somebody else. He alone is that. These are the words of a man who has poured his heart to God. It's a personal experience, a personal confidence. He's been through the toughest of times. He's been through the heartache. He's been through the betrayal. And in the midst of that, he poured out his heart to God. And God filled him with trust, confidence, and faith that can only come from God. Spurgeon said about this verse, to pour out your heart to God like you pour out water from a jug. Not as milk whose color remains, not as wine whose savor remains, not as honey whose taste remains, but as water of which when it is poured out, nothing remains. Pouring out your heart to God in such a way that nothing remains. And all that remains is a space for God to fill you with confidence. I want to read to you the words of Jesus, who was ultimately the hope and trust of David. Jesus did, and God through Jesus did what David longed for when he prayed, Oh, Absalom, I wish I could have taken your place. David wished that he could have taken the place of his rebellious child. But he couldn't. But in Jesus, the righteous son of God took the place of rebellious children like you and I. Because you and I, we had revolted against God. We had ran from him. We've conspired against him. We wanted to do things our own way. And we were the ones worthy of the death Absalom had. We were worthy of his judgment. But Jesus did what David wished he could do, but couldn't do. The righteous son of God took your place. He took my place. And here's what he invites you and I to today. Look at Matthew, verse, chapter 11, 28. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take upon my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. David says, soul, find rest, my soul. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. This is the invitation today. As heavy as you feel, as restless as you might be in this moment, the words of Jesus are, come to me as you are, come to me broken, come to me heavy, come to me burdened, and I will give you the rest that your soul desperately needs. I've got a glass of water here with me, and I'm going to ask you a question. And it's not how full is the glass. (laughs) You've heard that before. But my question to you is, how heavy do you think this glass of water is. How heavy do you think? Now you might be doing some calculations in your mind. Well, what's the mass of the glass? And what's the ounce of the water? And you might be putting out a, a guess of, well, maybe eight ounces, 16, maybe a pound. But really the absolute weight of the glass or the water doesn't matter. What determines how heavy this glass of water is is how long I hold it for. Hold it for a minute. It's fine. It's not heavy at all. I can move around. I can do stuff. Hold it for an hour. And my arms aren't that strong. <laughs> I wish they were. They're going to get numb. Hold it for a whole day. 
What was light to begin with is heavy. It's a burden. Imagine if I held it for a few weeks, a month, five years. I'm paralyzed. This arm is no good. Man, what started off as a lightweight is a heavyweight. Some of you today, you've held on to the words of a parent, maybe the words of a child, words that have wounded and betrayed you, the words of, of a spouse who walked out on you, a boss who let you go, a friend who said you were no longer enough, a coworker. You're holding on and you thought, hey, I could, I could handle it. I'm strong, I'm good. And it goes on for a few months, a few years, and you start weighing it. You feel the weight of it, the heaviness of it, and you thought you could dismiss it, but it triggers and it goes on and on. And today, maybe you're so burdened. I can't even recognize the weight anymore, but it's so heavy. And the world will say, hey, just shake it off. They'll even say, just put the glass down and move on. And you've tried that. You've tried to shake off the weight. You've tried to put down the burden and it just doesn't seem to put you down. Well, I think Jesus says something even better. He doesn't say shake it off or put it down. He says, give it to me. Come to me. Give me your burdens. Give me your insecurity. Give me your brokenness, your sin, your guilt, whatever is heavy. Give it to me and exchange I give you rest. It's not about putting it down. It's not about forgetting. It's not about emptying your soul. It's about giving it to Jesus. And he gives you the rest you desperately need. So for the next few moments, I'm going to invite you to do just that. David talks about coming into this posture of stillness. And some of your soul, you haven't been still for a long time. Today, would you posture your heart, your soul, your mind resting in God. Maybe things haven't yet resolved, but you find rest. Finding hope again, finding stillness, trust again. This is a moment for some of you to pour out your heart because you've been busy telling everybody else about your problems. God is saying, will you run to me with it? So we're going to give you a few minutes and the team is going to play lightly and the verses of the psalm are going to be on the screen and I'm going to ask you, Take the next few moments to be still. Reread the verses of the psalm on the screen and maybe apply it directly to what you're going through, the pain you feel, the wound, the hurt, the things that you can't control, and hand it to God. Let him have it. And in exchange, receive rest for your soul. Father, we come to you with open arms. We give it to you now. Still our soul, Holy Spirit, the restlessness, the weariness, still us on the inside.
so hard to be saved and, and today God is inviting you into the rest of salvation saying I've done what you couldn't do I've taken the penalty of your sin you could never be good enough or right enough or righteous enough for me to save you I've done it all so simply rest in me Would you just bow your head to me today I just feel strongly in my heart maybe there's some of you who need to find rest for your soul in Christ alone and if that's you, no one looking at would you just slip your hands to God? Say, God, I need a rest for my soul. I'm sorry of my sins. I'm sorry for running from you and turning from you, revolting against you. I'm coming back home. And maybe you've never done that. Just slip your hand to God and let him see it. Let him see it. Let him know where your heart is and experience the rest of being saved by grace alone. Not by works but by grace through faith. So Father, do that in this moment. Maybe for some of you, you got some next steps to take. Maybe right after service, you need to come and meet us in our prayer room and just say, here's what I've been carrying. Will you pray with me? We've got a room and some servants and some ministers ready to pray with you and help you take your next step of faith. Maybe it's to join a group or whatever it might be. We want a journey with you. On August 1st, we have our next baptism. 
Maybe for some of you who placed your faith in Christ today, or maybe for some of you who have never taken the step of celebrating in public what Christ has done in you, August 1st is the date that you need to put on your calendar and sign up to be baptized. Maybe you're watching from home or joining us from somewhere in the world. Email us at pastorsadventry.org. We want to pray with you. We want to know that you are here with us and what's happening in your life. Maybe you're on the comment section. Let us know where you're watching from and what God is stirring in your heart, what you need rest from. We would love to speak to you and pray with you. Thank you so much, family, for joining with us today. And would you just give God one more Thanksgiving praise? Oh, it's good. It's good to unburden our soul before Him.